Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 26 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 31st of July. And before we start, Leon, I guess we owe people an apology. We've been off the air for more than two weeks uh, because of a technical glitch in the university's um, computer system. And uh, we have to say we're sorry about that, but we're we're back on the air and look forward to you still being with us. That's right. Fortunately, it all got fixed, so uh, we're back with you, and it's terrific to be back. Indeed it is. So now, this week we've got... We're talking to Philip Weinman. Now, Philip Weinman uh, runs a company called uh, Locomote. It's a web company which simplifies booking and approval processes for travellers and saves money for companies, and it's already got a global market. Came out of a very simple idea and out of his own experience. Philip's um, an entrepreneur's entrepreneur and a very active man, so it's an interesting session. Then we're going to have a chat with uh, economist Stephen Kakoulis. And that's all about the dollar. That's right. What's left of it. That's right. Okay, so let's talk to uh, Philip Weinman. Philip, tell us about the business model of Locomote. I mean, it's made a huge impact in the, around the planet. How did you do that? Well, it started with the old uh, adage where I was a user and I was spending significant money on travel in one of my companies, and I was looking for a better way to uh, bring the cost of travel down. The other problem I had was in the corporate model, um, most of the technology was pretty was pretty staid in compared to the user experience of a retail system. And so I went out to tender and I got the same response from all the tenders about how they could save me money. I then went to the airlines and I got my airline deals, and I found that really there was very little difference between one company and the other. So I decided to build my own technology, which is what I've done for most of my life. And this technology was designed to change the habit and pattern of how you book travel. And that's really the way it all started. And then I met I met Ross, who uh, approached us on another business altogether. And I asked him if he'd be interested in building me user-friendly technology to improve the efficiencies of my own business and reducing my travel spend. And so this is a business that you sell to corporates? Today, it's a very much a business that goes direct to corporate. And so corporates, instead of going to travel agents, can go to your business and book their own Okay, well, we, we actually see this as a combination. They come to us because they want a technology solution to reduce their dependence on third parties. However, we still believe very much that there is going to be a need for travel agents to service the problems. You know, there's problems that also it makes travel agents more efficient because the technology is online, which makes the travel agent more efficient. I'm glad you say that because I was thinking that here you, here you are, a company that's actually declared war on travel agents. Well, that was just uh, in the very early days when I was trying to find a solution for my own travel. And I was very disappointed with the fact that we were purely getting the same result from every travel agent, which was based around their fees. I wanted to change the pattern of behavior of how we traveled. What's the advantage for a corporate? I mean, most of them now go to an agent that they've contracted with. The agent does all the hotels and everything else. Why is Locomotes uh, offering superior to that? Well, because the whole experience is, is very much a very friendly user experience that corporates can now book online. I think it's fair to say that most people today, when they book a holiday, book online. And we're finding that there's no reason why corporate 
experience, user experience, can't be as significant as an on online leisure experience. The reason it hasn't historically is with corporates, you need duty of care in the, in the booking, you need pre-trip approvals, you need reporting, and it's always been very difficult to build that user experience for a corporate. What we've done at Locomode is we've built a very, very strong user experience that makes it very easy to use. Um, a checkout screen literally in one one page and away they you, you can go and by doing that and changing the pattern of how it's done it allows the travel agent to focus more on service than on trying to be a technology company now if i do a booking online i go to the airline say i go to a hotel site i go to a car rental site and it drives me nuts basically so have you solved that problem all in the one system. So what happens is you book, you go online as a corporate and you say, I want to book uh, an airfare, say Sydney to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to New York, New York to Chicago and back. And the system will do the bookings for your air. It'll do the bookings for your hotel, your car. It'll check to see that there's approval in place to do that. It'll check that there's no security risk in going to those places because today there's a very strong reliance by corporates on duty of care for their travelers. They want to keep their travelers safe. At the end of the trip, we then know where these travelers are. We know where in the world they are in case of evacuation. And we give them the reporting to allow them to see their cost savings as a result of, the, of their trip. Tell me, what's the business model for Logomite? I mean, do you, do you clip the ticket uh, for every trip booked? How does it work? Well, that model is evolving. And because this technology has grown so quickly, it originally was going to be a traditional clip per booking. We're now talking about a very similar model, I suppose, to Apple, where they have the Apple TV, where what happens is you buy an Apple TV, you have apps in the TV, some are free, some you pay for. Well, we have the same model now at Locomote, where we have free apps in our platform. And I'll let Ross explain a bit later about the um, technology and how that's been built. But in, in effect, what happens is you enter into the platform, it's agnostic, you can use any supplier you want, any app. We have some apps that we've built ourselves, and there's some apps that are coming in from third parties. The corporate can then look at all the apps available and decide what they want, whether it be expense management, duty of care, taxis, anything they want to look for fits into the platform. And from there, it goes, goes to the next level, which is the entire process of booking a trip. So where, where does the business model come in on that? Well, we're going to have some items that we take a, um, a fee for using the, the app. If it's a more advanced app, uh, we take fees for our booking engine. So basically what we're doing is our model is evolving and we're finding that the platform is is at a point now where we basically give the platform to the corporate for them to choose how they want to use the platform because it is borderless, which means they can use it in any country in the world without having a reliance on any, anyone else. Now, this is your, at the moment, you're, you're selling it to Australian corporates? No, we've signed some global deals uh, really? already. Uh, one we can't publicize, but they're a very, very large credit card company where we signed a global framework agreement with them. Uh, and we've also signed a global agreement with probably the biggest serviced office business, uh, a company called Regis, who have you know upwards of a million businesses in their offices around the world. So how do you go about doing that? Well, we're now building a, a, a model to implement in every country because the product is borderless. So what that means is unlike other technology where you're reliant on other travel agents from each country, the beauty here is the profiles of the traveler sit with the corporate and therefore they're able to own those profiles and therefore the travel agent just has to fit within that, that platform. What about currency payments and things like that? How do you handle that? Yeah, so the, the, the payments and currency, the, the tool obviously works uh, multi-currency, multilingual as well. So 
um, essentially in, in each market that you go to, the tool adapts automatically to the currency. So it's a strangeness in the way the the airline industry works. It's what they call a pseudo that in, in each country, um, you know, you attach the tool uh, to an agency in the back end, which then handles all the currency transactions, payments, etc. So from a technology point of view, what you've got is a platform onto which you can hang apps and tools and things like that. Correct. So it's a, it's a genuine platform, basically where you can build uh, any application into it. Um, we slot those in, and it can work in in any country, in any currency, in any language. So now you've got a global audience, um, and it's growing. How big do you think you're going to get? Well, that's a really interesting question because this business has really uh, started when some two years ago. One year ago, we had no, one and a half years ago, we had no clients. So what we've established in the space of a year is a client base now, user base, and global accounts. So I don't know how much bigger it can get, but certainly we've just started. So do you, do you see growing further? Oh, it hasn't started because a year ago, we were still talking about, you know, uh, finishing off the product. The product is now well and truly complete, but it's always going to be a work in progress. But we're finding that we've got global acceptance. Anytime we show a corporation, the first thing they say is they've never seen anything like this. It's got a helicopter view. And unlike most technology in travel, where there's a bias towards a certain supplier, what we've built, and as I say, the best way to explain it is the Apple TV, where you can bring any supplier into that box, depending on Apple agreeing, we've done the same in travel. So do you have competitors? With that model, no, but I'm sure that if some, because it's predominantly been a very incestuous global industry where you've got your traditional travel agents who are, have their own technology, then you've got other technology companies who build their own technology so no one else could use that technology but their, themselves. With Locomote, we've built um, a platform that's agnostic, which means that any supplier for a corporate can come into the platform and be plugged in or plugged out depending on their happiness with that supplier. That is unique. So this might mean that you'd get into, say, partnerships with Booking.com, RentalCars.com, this sort of thing, or would you go straight to Avis and Hertz? Well, 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 Avis and Hertz are already in what they call global distribution systems. But what we are doing is we are putting companies into the platform, third-party companies. So, for example, if you're a corporation and you say, I want to work with a company called Expensify, which is a very fast-growing expense management system, then we would say, fine, they can come into our platform. They could then say, well, we want to deal with this booking engine. They can come into the platform. So we allow uh, third parties to come in, which allows the corporate to actually have a total agnostic platform to, to bring the best of breed into that platform. We have yet to find a company that's able to offer that agnostic view. So, for example, if you're an expense management system, you're not going to allow another expense management system to come into your system. Philip and Ross, thank you very much for your time. Well, there, as we said, a simple idea, beautifully carried out and already a global business. That's right. And now, uh, Stephen Kukoulis. Stephen, the uh, dollar's been heading down to a six-year low. It's down around about 73 cents now, and uh, that's been caused by what's happening in China and no doubt speculation about what's going to be happening with the Fed. What's your view about it? Yeah, the dollar's fallen a long way. Remember, it was just a couple of years ago, we were at 110. So the move down to 73 cents or thereabouts, uh, yeah, it was a 37 cent decline in the exchange rate. So it's gone a long way. 
The reasons for the this most recent dip, you know, the, these new six-year lows, as you mentioned, are the you know the ructions and turmoil and falls in the Chinese stock market, and of course, when people see those things happening uh, in China, they automatically think, well, there's uh, problems ahead for Australia. And again, as you touched on, there's increasing uh, discussion about the Fed hiking rates. Uh, possibly in September, probably in September even. And of course, that interest rate gap starts to close if the US Fed does that. And one of the reasons why Australia has been so strong for so long in terms of the currency was that its yield differential was positive. So, you know, you throw those things into the mix and there's still ongoing debate about just how robust our economy actually is right now. And uh, there's a bit of a shying away from the dollar. And and even, you know, good old uh, Standard and Paul's, the credit rating agency, just gave a few little hints that unless Australia gets its act together on the budget over the next uh, 6 to 12 to 18 months, there could be a risk of a downgrade. And that's obviously yeah, had, a, had a slight impact on some investors. Can you see Standard & Poor's moving on it? I mean, because, I mean, the chances yeah. of the budget forecast being met are very remote. Well, look, I, I think there's, yes, there's some problems uh, there, for the, particularly over the more medium term. You know, those, uh, that return to a very small deficit and even surpluses by 2020 that were in the budget papers, those last couple of years were actually predicated on 3.5% GDP. The RBA governor last week threw a big bucket of cold water on that idea, saying that, yeah, maybe, maybe we're getting into a, a stage of the cycle where our trend growth is actually nearer two and three quarter percent rather than three and a quarter, let alone we grow at three and a half as Treasury was forecasting. Now, if he's right or even partly right, then the task of getting back to balance and surplus and these sorts of things is much harder. And that's where the S&P and the rating agencies concerns about Australia are very valid that, you know, we run... You know, not not big deficits. I'm, you know, I'm not terribly worried about the budget deficits personally, but you know, unless we're starting to get that true true trajectory towards a balanced budget a little bit sooner, that it's more difficult. And of course, we've got to remember that you know, while politically the last the last budget was more favourable, they weren't quite as tough. What that actually means is that um, yeah, we, we we didn't see that fiscal consolidation being accelerated at all. And uh, uh, so it's a really curious time for the budget and just whether we are actually. Uh, in the early stages of adjusting to a new, lower potential rate of GDP growth. But uh, Standard & Poor's is actually saying, aren't they, that unless the government finds new sources of revenue or hikes taxes or cuts further, we're going to see a downgrading in our credit rating. That, that's that's the very issue. That if, unless there's those things that you mentioned, genuine fiscal policy tightening, that we've got a problem. They also did highlight the fact that a lot of the measures that are there uh, were being uh, held up in the Senate. So they had a few um, a little barbs, if you like, towards the Senate in terms of some of the policy issues that uh, the government is looking at to try to correct the budget balance. So you know it, we, we've got this ongoing debate about you know how long it's taking to get back towards a balanced budget, how long it's taking for these reforms to get through the Parliament, and even. As, as we mentioned, that the last budget was not a tough one. It was not a um, you know a fiscal repair budget because, of course, the government's been under a lot of pressure in the public opinion polls, and um, you know they're obviously trying to uh, not offend the um, the electorate, particularly as next year's election year. Do you see the prospect of a downgrading? Look, no, not uh, my view is no, not yet, not yet. I think I think we need, and I think as S and P quite rightly mentioned, there's got to be a bit more bad news, uh, and that bad news has probably got to be in the form of you know perhaps another leg lower in the Chinese economy in commodity prices, and therefore that translates into a a, a 
further uh, deterioration in the budget position. As I said, I don't think we're there yet. And, uh, um, and we are getting the benefit of the lower dollar, as we've mentioned. And, of course, low interest rates are helping the economy a bit too. You know, we had the NAB business business sentiment numbers uh, a couple of weeks ago being a little bit better. And uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't think we're there yet. But I'm, I'm really anxious to see my EFO, um, unfortunately not till about November or December, the mid-year economic outlook from the government, to see just how these budget numbers are panning out and whether and whether Treasury in its wisdom has decided to you know, scale back some of its optimistic GDP numbers, uh, particularly in 2016, 17 and beyond. So where do you see the dollar heading? I mean, it's, uh, it's already at a six-year low and China's not getting better. Do you see it uh, heading down much further? It's, well, yes, it's fallen a long way. If we, if we were to see the Fed hiking and signalling a, a further hawkish bias, that is, there are more rate hikes ahead uh, over the course of the next three to six months, if we are to see um, this disappointing news on commodity prices come through yet again over the next little while, then yes, I, I think um, yeah, they'd, certainly put, they'd certainly sound some stronger warning signs about our economy that you know the, the budget position would just be coming a little uncomfortable not disastrous but just a little bit uncomfortable and I think that's that's the critical issue when we sort of judge to see you know what's happening in the economy and whether our, our good luck if you like is about to end or whether the credit rating agencies take a pretty dim view about how difficult it's been uh, to get back towards a budget surplus and this is from both sides of politics over the last three or four years but uh, there are predictions out there from forecast that the dollar could go down as low as 60 cents, perhaps even lower. Yeah, indeed. I've seen some forecasts increasingly come out. And I think uh, for the ones that I've read, they've got a very gloomy view on on commodity prices, on China. They've got a they've got a concerning view about how aggressive the Fed will be. So I think a lot of this is is a, a, a US dollar story. And in fact, as they're calling a 60 cent Aussie dollar, they're also calling the euro to weaken down to parity with the US dollar from levels now about 110. So you can see that it's a sort of a, as much a US dollar story as it is an Aussie dollar weakness story. Having said that, you know, we, we do have we do have a concern about the um, the commodity price cycle. And if you look at the recent international trade data, you can see problems occurring there, even in terms of you know, the dollar value receipts that we're getting from our export sector. That we, Again, not that we have a current account deficit problem, but it's starting to get wider rather than uh, starting to narrow or keeping narrow. And that's, again, the, the legacy, if you like, of these very low commodity prices compared with what we were getting uh, even a couple of years ago. But uh, surely the commodity prices at some stage have to start rising again. Uh, well, that's the $64 million question, I think, that we must be getting close. You know, we, commodity prices for the, some of the big commodities have dropped 60, 70, 80% from the, from the highs. You know, even gold, you know, from $1,900 to $1,100, iron ore from 180 down to 50 oil from above 100 now to under 50. So they're big, big falls. Of course, there's been a big pickup in production. But what we're seeing, curiously, this might take a little while. It might take a year or two for this lad to work. But we're seeing the big mining companies, the BHPs, the Rios, the Vales in uh, in South America starting to say, well, we're actually shelving a few projects now. That that um, proven deposit, if you like, of iron ore that we were going to be digging out of the ground, it's now of marginal uh, profitability if we were to do it. So Look, we'll sit on it, uh, and that in fact limits the production. So, in a sense, 
are we getting the market forces telling us that there's going to be a, a slowing in production growth, which, of course, you know, perversely is actually good news for commodity prices. It, it reduces this oversupply problem, which undoubtedly has been important in pushing some of these commodity prices down and, of course, the weakness in China. We're talking here, uh, if, it, if it does rise again, we're not talking until about 2017 to 2018. That would be my rough guess. I think we've got another another year of uh, sluggishness in commodity prices. For, for economies like China now, it takes a while for, to to turn them around if, if you like that you know they can't quite fix them on a dime and you know the u.s if they're hiking interest rates while well, it's a good story in a sense because they're only doing it because the u.s economy is strong it perhaps takes a little bit of gloss out of you know the u.s economy in another year or two particularly if we see the fed fund rate going well i guess we're in the business of saying how low will it go some people say it'll go down to 50 cents well some are saying that so let's let's take a look but it's yeah. it's going to be interesting to watch yeah, I'll say it is. It, it's uh, particularly if you want to take an overseas holiday. <laughs> that's right. That's okay. right. Anyway, now the news. Well, Gary, uh, first of all, there's the big news came out of China this week that was following a three-week rally following government intervention. China stocks tumbled this week to their lowest levels since 2007. On Monday, the Shanghai Composite Index plummeted 8.5% to 3,725.56 at its close. That's its worst daily percentage fall since February the 27th, 2007. The Shenzhen Composite crashed by 7% to 2,160.09, and the Shinex fell 7.4%. And it continued to fall this week, although it uh, it was been picked up lately. Its uh, shares are back up again. But the, this collapse follows the release of data showing that factory profits in the world's second largest economy fell 0.3% in June, and China's manufacturing activity for the month of July came in at its lowest level in 15 months. Now, the issue is at the moment that analysts are saying government support for the market is unsustainable. In recent weeks, a state-owned fund called uh, China Securities Financial Corps has spent hundreds of billions of one in supporting the market. 21 brokerages pledged to support the Shanghai Index. And there is now speculation the Chinese government will have to step in again with a new rescue plan. Yeah. I mean, the shares have gone up, but no one is confident it's going to stay that way. No, and, and I think it would one shouldn't relate the uh, decline in the Chinese economy to what's gone on in the share market because the share market is really like a casino and uh, shares are bought simply because they're shares and there's no real relationship. They're basically, most of them are mum and dad investors and they're buying it with borrowed money. That's right, margin traders and, and they're not, you know, they're, they're making a bet and they don't know anything about the That's right, basis that's right. It. So it's, it's very much like a casino. And as a result, we saw oil prices falling. It's the steepest drop because fears about reduced, reduced demand from the world's top energy consumer, which is China. The US benchmark uh, West Texas Intermediate for September delivery fell 75 cents to 47.39 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. The global benchmark Brent North Sea Crude tumbled to $53.47 a barrel in London trade, uh, which was down uh, more than a dollar. So that's something to watch out for. The oil market in resp- is responding to what's been happening in China. Yeah, and of course it's uh, helping keep inflation in Australia down. Meanwhile, in Greece, they're negotiating the bailout package after the Greek parliament passed the passage of tough reforms. But some members of Greek's 
Greece's leftist-led government wanted to raid central bank reserves and hack taxpayers' accounts to prepare for a return to the drachma, according to reports last weekend. That highlighted the chaos in the ruling Syriza's party. Now, it's not clear how seriously the government considered these plans, which have been attributed to former energy minister Panagiotis Lavasanis and ex-finance minister Yanis Varoufakis. Uh, both ministers were sacked. Uh, now, the reports on Sunday came at the end of a week of fevered speculation over what Syriza hardliners had in mind as an alternative to the tough bailout turn that Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras had reluctantly accepted to keep Greece in the Eurozone. Now, about a quarter of the party's 149 MPs rebelled over the proposal to pass sweeping austerity measures in exchange for something like 86 billion euros in French loans. Now, and Tsipras has been struggling to hold the party together. Yeah, but in fact, if you look at... Uh Adding $86 billion to the uh, Greek uh, debt, it may, I think, it just makes going back to the drachma um, even more likely, just the defaulting. That's right. Meanwhile, to Australia, the head of the Australian Competition Consumer Commission, Rod Sims, is warning the Murdoch family that the corporate regulator is going to be taking a close look at the deal, which is going to see Foxtel taking a 15% stake in ailing free-to-air Group 10 network. And the regulator is going to be looking at News Corp's 50% stake in Foxtel and also News Corp Chairman Lachlan Murdoch's 8 0.5% stake in 10 through his private investment vehicle, Ilira. And so Sims says they're going to be looking at it closely and it's too early to say yet what their view is going to be. But watch that space. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, It's a very interesting space, with uh, particularly with Telstra's plans to get into the video-on-demand business. That's right, that's right. And we'll talk about that. Telstra is actually moving into the booming video streaming market and it's partnered with US streaming device maker Roku and will offer the Roku 2, which is a device connecting TVs and host apps to streaming video services like Netflix, Presto, Stan and YouTube. Now, the Roku... Div- device has taken off in the US and United Kingdom where it's competing against Apple TV and Google's Chromecast devices. Telstra will be launching Telstra TV in September. Now that raises questions as you say about the future of Foxtel which Telstra has a 50% stake in. That's right. Um, One saving thing for Foxtel of course is that the uh, Roku device Telstra won't be offering free-to-air retransmission which is one thing. Uh, The other thing is um, of course this uh, Roku ain't free. It's $69 to buy the device but then you've got to pay for the bandwidth which is what Telstra is interested in. That's exactly right and what's what's more to the point this establishes Telstra as a player in the media industry the go-to place for video streaming but it won't have the heavy costs of producing content. No, it's you, you'll just put an app up, and if you want Netflix, uh, Roku will supply it. So, you know, and uh, video streaming has got a high growth trajectory. I mean, I was reading Bud.com the other day, and online video streaming, or IPTV, already makes up the largest component of internet traffic in Australia, and it's going to grow faster than any of the other digital format. I think I'm right in saying that for many um, sectors in the community, there's more time spent on YouTube and uh, other internet-based things than on uh, TV. So positions Telstra very, very strongly. The other piece of news is a report from Deloitte Access Economics, which just came out today, and it says business investment has hit the wall. Now, not only is total private construction work down 13% in the past year alone, but engineering construction work, formerly driven by the resource investment boom, has shrunk for six quarters in a row, and it says commodity prices have been falling since late 2012. A number of projects that have been sitting in the development pipeline are being tossed on the scrap heap, and chances are that others will follow in their footsteps, ensuring that the project graveyard will expand faster than the pipeline. So things are expected to get worse before they get better for engineering construction like mines and ports, as, for, as most of the LNG projects are wrapped up over the coming year. 
Yeah, one thing worries me is that we're still depending on resources rather than developing uh, innovation, knowledge, this sort of thing where the world, the rest of the world's going. The other, the other piece of news is that Virgin Australia posted a reduced full year loss of ninety three point eight million for two thousand fourteen. Now that fifteen, now that might sound bad, but it's actually a better number than last year's whopping three hundred fifty five point six million dollar net loss. Virgin is looking at some blue sky, Gary, and it's attributed the improvement to cost reductions and the improved performance of its low cost subsidiary Tiger Air Australia. All eyes are now on Qantas, which hands down its full year results on August the twenty, and the market is expecting in the, a number in the order of something about above $600 million for the 2014-15. Big turnaround. Good for Alan Joyce, isn't it? Now to the mining industry, and miners are facing a tough year ahead, according to the Newport Consulting's latest business, mining business outlook report. But there are some glimmers of hope. First, the bad news. There will be job losses. 78% of mining companies say they'll reduce CapEx this year. That's almost double the number last year. And 80% say they're going to reduce headcounts. That's going to mean losses of thousands of jobs. And of the few who are spending, only 10% are actually investing in new developments and projects. Also, more mine closures are expected with the renegotiation of contracts with rail and port operations in the coal regions of New South Wales and Queensland. Yeah, and it's all about production costs because if iron ore's down to, say, 50 bucks or, or less a tonne, uh, some of the junior miners uh, cost more than that to get it out of the ground. On the plus side, though, the report says miners are marginally more optimistic for the first time in three years. 16% are cautiously optimistic about their prospects for the year ahead. That's more than double the number last year. So that's something to watch. Now, BHP Billiton is reducing the, the size of its Melbourne head office and axing 100 jobs, taking it down to 300 employees. That follows the $10 billion demerger of uh, South 32 in May, which saw the company spinning off non-core assets like manganese, aluminium and other unlived commodities. And at the end of that, BHP Billiton's Singapore office, which has 400 staff, is going to be bigger. And that suggests that the Melbourne office is just going to be like a think tank. Because when BHP Billiton BHP merged with Billiton, the agreement was they had to keep their head office in Melbourne. Yeah, so it's going to be just a place for a nice glass of wine and a bit of a chat. So, But it also just BHP Billiton is now going through a massive change. The company is now focused on squeezing values from its operations and cutting costs because prices for iron ore, copper, petroleum and coal, which are the four pillars of BHP, are continuing to sink. Yeah, and it was smart to um, spin off South 32, wasn't it? It's done, done quite well. Now, the other big news was that Double Net shareholders voted overwhelmingly in favour of the proposed $1.6 billion offer from rival TPG, and that included founder Mike Malone. He changed his mind. I don't think he was terribly happy, but um, the uh, sale to TPG will give him $40 million. That's right. And a statement from Ionet said 95.09% voted in favour of the offering, delivered them um, shareholders $8.80 in cash, plus a special dividend of up to $0.75 cents for each Ionet share, or 0.553 new TPG. $3.77 in cash and plus a 75 cent dividend. Now, th th what's important here, Gary, is that this deal is going to turn TPG into Australia's second biggest broadband provider. It's going to have 1.7 million broadband customers, and that's going to be bigger than Optus, and it's going to become a serious challenger to Telstra. Still a lot smaller than uh, Telstra. Now, Maya is rolling out voluntary redundancies at 42 of its 67 stores, and the aim is to transform a workforce of permanent full-time and part-time staff into a more flexible model that relies more on casual employees that can be brought in and out to meet fluctuations in store traffic. 
And now this window of voluntary redundancies aims to reduce result in a 20% cut in hours for permanent part-time staff and they'd pick up work as casual employees. Now, my chief executive, Richard Umbers, is conducting a strategic review of the iconic retail train, which has warned investors to expect full-year profit to fall below last year's result. And I might add that Myers' arch-rival David Jones has reported a 6.4% boost in sales, but Myers' annual sales have been growing at a relatively flat 1.7%. So uh, they're quite desperate. Yeah, well, a change in management at DJ's. I mean, it's now owned by Woolworths of South Africa. And Woolworths is really cranking it up. The Australian Taxation Office is using its new powers to chase self-managed super funds, breaking the rules on deductions. The ATO got its powers in July last year, and that allows it to impose administration penalties on trustees for certain superannuation breaches, particularly over particularly inappropriately claimed deductions when a fund is in pension phase. Now, during that phase, superannuation funds pay no tax, but they have to meet a minimum drawdown of somewhere between 4 and 6% each year depending on the retiree's age and they also have to file the right paperwork now so the ATO has targeted individuals who enter the SMSF sector with poor personal taxation lodgement histories they have no income or limited income and they've also targeted funds that have made suddenly significant changes in their assets and income and Gary the final bit of news is that consumer confidence may have been unsettled in recent months but that hasn't stopped people from applying for loans or new credit cards and it's suggested in a low interest rate environment Australia's retail and housing sectors will continue to benefit and help offset the impact of the downturn in mining related constructions credit card provided Vader says its quarterly consumer credit demand index uh, has jumped 10.7% in the June quarter compared with the same period last year and that includes a 15% surge in credit card applications and a 6.4% increase in personal loans. This index is important because it does provide an early indication of movements in consumer spending and retail sales so it's something to watch. Indeed it is and perhaps with a little trepidation because it could be people trying to keep a bit of money in the pocket. Anyway there it is. And next week, we'll be talking to Chris Noon, who runs a company called Collaborate, which uh, runs peer-to-peer networks. It's a very interesting field. And uh, that's it for us. So uh, if you want to keep in touch with us, you can get in on us on Twitter, on Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or you can go to us on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.